0: Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast.
1: Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 454th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Yay, Kelly's back. <laughs> I'm back. And we're back in the closet recording. <laughs> On this episode, we are bringing to you a location suggested by our listener, Shane, and that's Green Bay, Wisconsin. There's a lot of haunted locations here. I can't wait. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spooktacular crew, Tammy. Brandy with an I, Amber, Crystal with a C-H and an I, Christy with a K and ends with an I-E, Tatiana, Jeff, and Celine. Thank you so much for joining us in our Facebook group. And now, this moment in Audity.
2: The moment in Oddity was suggested by John Michaels. Many of us enjoy getting away from city lights and gazing up at the night sky, hoping for a glimpse of a shooting star or a UFO. Eugene Merle Shoemaker was an American geologist who studied the night sky in search of new comets, such as the Shoemaker-Levy 9. He co-discovered this comet with his wife Carolyn and comet chaser friend David H. Levy while at the Palomar Observatory in Southern California. In July of 1994, they watched through telescopes as several major fragments of the comet pummeled Jupiter, which provided quite a show for spectators as it was televised around the world. Along with his career with the USGS, he also had associations with NASA and Caltech. In July of 1997, Shoemaker was studying an impact crater site in Australia when he was killed in an automobile accident. After his death and subsequent cremation, a portion of his ashes were carried to the moon with the Lunar Prospector mission. Today, there are various price options for those who wish to have the same type of burial. Whether or not his gravesite is haunted is unknown, but the thought of having a loved one's cremains launched into space certainly is odd.
1: This is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. When I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring. It's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past.
2: And now, This Month in History.
1: In the month of September on the 13th in 1851, Walter Reed was born in Gloucester County, Virginia. The youngest of five children, Walter attended the University of Virginia and graduated with a medical degree at the age of 17, which gave him the distinction of remaining the youngest student to graduate from the medical university to date. He went on to earn a second degree the next year from Bellevue Hospital Medical College. In February of 1875, Reed took a 30-hour exam to gain entry into the medical corps of the U.S. Army. One of the exam's questions related to the spread of yellow fever, and the answer that Walter gave detailed the spreading of germs by clinging to clothing and the like. He passed his exam and accepted a commission in July of 1877. After practicing medicine in rural areas for 15 years, Walter decided to go in a different direction which would eventually take him to Havana, where he hoped to address the growing yellow fever epidemic. He arrived in June of 1900 and after conducting many experiments on human subjects to find the cause of yellow fever, he was thrilled to discover that the disease was transferred by mosquitoes. From a very young age, Walter had desired to make a significant difference in the suffering of humankind, and he was celebrated with this discovery. He received honorary degrees from the University of Michigan as well as Harvard. Reed was also to be appointed to the Assistant Surgeon General with ranking of colonel. Tragically, in November of 1902, Walter took ill and was admitted to the Army Hospital on November 23rd due to peritonitis after his appendix ruptured. Walter Reed was later buried at Arlington National Cemetery. His marker reads, he gave to man control of that dreadful scourge, Yellow Fever. In 1909, a new Army hospital would bear his name and would later become the Walter Reed Army Medical Center.
2: When people hear the name Green Bay, they probably imagine people in football jerseys with large triangles of fake cheese atop their heads. Cheeseheads? heads? Exactly. The city is so much more than just a hub for football, even though it is nicknamed Town, This is a city influenced by many cultures from the early Native Americans that were here first, to the French, to the British, to the Dutch, to the Irish, and to the Belgians. Their burial places and businesses and homes all seem to be touched by an essence of the supernatural. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Green Bay, Wisconsin.
1: makes a city like Green Bay, Wisconsin, so attractive to spirits? Is it being located on a major waterway like the Fox River? Green Bay sits at the mouth of that tributary. Could it be the early settlement of Native Americans who came here because of the fertile land? Indigenous tribes had been here for centuries. The Ho-Chunk and the Menominee and their ancestors all lived in this region, hunting and fishing and growing rice, corn, beans, and tobacco. The Ho-Chunk were also called the Winnebago, and they gave women more rights than the settlers that would push them out. Kelly, the tribes wouldn't take action on something unless at least half of the women agreed. I think that's very progressive of them. It is, but then when you think about trying to get half of the women to agree to anything, they probably got (laughs) nothing done. (laughs) Well, (laughs) was it the influence
2: of the different explorers and immigrants that would call Green Bay home? The French called this area La Bay, and they first arrived in 1634. The first settlers wouldn't arrive until 1745, and this was the Charles Day-Langlade family. Charles was a war chief and is considered the founder and father of Wisconsin. And he was of mixed race, son of a French-Canadian father and an Ottawa woman. In 1754, Green Bay was incorporated. The British took over the settlement from the French in 1763, and then after the American Revolution, the area went to the Americans. The British were first to call this Green Bay because of the green tint that would cover the shore in the early spring. The Americans built Fort Howard in 1816 and people started streaming here.
1: The opening of the Erie Canal in 1825 launched Green Bay into more trade and by the 1870s the railroad was the primary transportation and opened up Green Bay to visionary industrialists for lumber milling, iron smelting and the production of paper products. Green Bay is most famous for being the home of the Green Bay Packers. But for us, it's the large number of spirits hanging around that gets our interest. We'll never really know what makes a town infused with hauntings. But for Green Bay, we think the main source of hauntings might be thanks to John Jacob Astor IV, who decided to plat out the city's current downtown on top of a burial ground. Ah, that may do it. Gets it every time. Tim Fries, who owned Green Bay Ghost Tours, claims that most of the downtown area was a cemetery at one time. And I put that in past tense because when I went to the Green Bay Ghost Tours website, it looks like it's now defunct. Could have been because of COVID. I'm thinking that was the case because I went and looked at the calendar and there was nothing that you could schedule and we're coming up on October. And I'm like, there is no way that Ghost Tours, even places that only do them seasonally, they're always doing them in October. So. And the Green Bay Packers, Kelly, is my mom's team because she was born in Wisconsin. Very nice. So I guess she's sort of kind of a cheesehead. Our first location we're going to look at is the Lorelei Inn. And the first time I'd ever heard this name, Kelly, I was working at a barn grill up in Laramie, Wyoming, and they were deciding what beers they wanted to put on tap. So we got to do beer tastings, which was a horrible part of my job. <laughs> and it was the first time I was introduced to this beer that was, it was called Lorelei, but I can't remember now because this was back in the early 90s.
2: It was last century. <laughs>
1: yeah. I don't know if it was the brewery or the actual name of the beer, but I remember that was my favorite. And this is just when craft brewing was really getting started. I was pretty excited about that Lorelei beer. And now here (laughs) we have the Lorelei Inn, and I think they're probably named for the same thing.
2: Possibly. The Lorelei Inn started as a smaller building that was a bar called Bob's Alois Tavern in 1930. In 1952, it was bought by a German man named Tom Eshowet, and he changed the name to Lorelei Inn inspired by the legend of a beautiful woman who threw herself into the River Rhine after her lover left her for another, and she changed into a siren. Woo, woo. Sorry, not that kind
1: <laughs> of siren, Kelly. <Callie. laughs>
2: she then went on to lure sailors to their deaths. Tom was able to expand the bar into a much bigger restaurant when the gravestone business next door moved across the street. The restaurant offered German food and beer, of course. In 1970, Tom's son Dave took over the restaurant and ran it until 1980 when he sold it to the Kubiak family. They ran it until 1983, and then Len and Marilyn Hack bought the restaurant in August of that year. Their son Dave now owns the place, and he's basically had this place in his life from the time he was a teenager. His sister Lynn and niece Megan are co-owners. They still use Tom's recipe for their German dishes, and their beer list has been expanded to include craft beers and this was one of the original places to serve imported beers.
1: You think Wisconsin is a pretty big beer place, so that's a pretty big deal that this is one of the first places that had imported beers. Nothing bad seems to have happened at this location, but people claim it is haunted. Objects move on their own, pots come off their hooks inexplicably, TVs turn on and off by themselves, and disembodied footsteps are heard upstairs. One of the spirits thought to be haunting the place is believed to belong to former owner Leonard Hack. He loved the bar and likes to hang out there where his cigarette smoke is detected and people have felt his presence. He also visits the basement where his office had been. And the interesting thing is a lot of that cigarette smoke is mostly smelled down in the basement because he would sneak down there to smoke. Ah. I don't think the wife knew he was doing that. Of course, she probably <laughs> smelled it on him. But Lynn told Action 2 News, No one has quit, but I've had them run up the stairs freaked. All of a sudden, the cigarette smoke comes out of nowhere and up the stairs they come. She claims that things happen here weekly. One time, there was a sound like wind coming through the restaurant and a bunch of items were tossed on the floor. A skeptical cook changed his mind when he watched a pot pick itself up off a hook and it fell straight down. Not only is Dave and Lynn's father in his former restaurant, but their mother's spirit is here too, mostly hanging out in the kitchen where she cooked and cleaned to keep everything spotless. A table in the corner of the restaurant has the most activity. Many people asked to be moved from this haunted corner. Wow. Next we have
2: the Captain's Walk Winery. The home that houses Captain's Walk Winery is gorgeous, built in the Italianate architectural style, with a wonderful square cupola at the top. This was a house built in 1857 by Elisha Morrow for his wife and six daughters. Elisha helped to organize the Republican Party of Wisconsin, and as a delegate, he voted for Abraham Lincoln to be the Republican candidate for president in 1860. When Elisha and his wife passed away, their daughter, Helen Morrow, inherited the house. Eventually, she had to sell the house because she couldn't afford to maintain it, and it was purchased by the Green Bay Women's Club in 1920. The house went through four more owners, including a law office, before Brad and Eric Schmilling purchased it and turned it into Captain's Walk Winery in 2006.
1: Everyone agrees that the ghost here belongs to Helen Morrow. She loved the home and wants to make sure it's well kept. The first claims of paranormal activity date back to 1970, and the owners at that time were running a gift shop. They claimed that they saw the full-bodied apparition of a woman standing at the top of the stairs. The figure seemed to be angry, and they wondered if it was because they'd remodeled the house. I bet that's the problem. Helen has been blamed for moving and throwing wine glasses and books and she turns on sink faucets. The freight elevator also tends to run on its own. The interesting thing about this spirit is that she may reveal herself at different ages. The reason we say that is because Brad and Eric claimed to hear a little girl bouncing a ball and playing one evening when they stayed overnight. They followed the giggling up on the second floor but found no one. Donna McVeigh works in the winery and she was interviewed by WFRV Local 5 in 2020. And she said during the pandemic shutdown, they were doing some remodeling. She had been using her sander on a table, but shut it down to eat lunch. After a bit, she heard a noise and went to investigate. She found the sander on and making its way down the table. She said it was a very Helen kind of thing to do.
2: Wow.
1: And people see, like, they hear this child, they see this full-bodied apparition of a woman. So it's like, does she show herself like when she was a little girl and then sometimes as an adult woman? Who knows? But I wonder why it couldn't possibly be more than one spirit. Which could be the case, too.
2: Right. I'd be kind of ticked because a traveling sander on a wood table is not a good thing. You're going to have a messed up table.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but it is dirty work. And if somebody's going to do it for me, I'd probably be like,
2: okay, you have at it. Just follow the grain, darling. Just (laughs) follow the grain. Magic Code 12 wrote on TripAdvisor, While waiting for the tour to begin, everyone taking the tour was standing in the foyer. Where my mom and I were standing, we could see one of the bathrooms. The bathroom light was on, and as we were standing there, the light went off. One of the women standing next to us said that she had just used the bathroom, and the light was a switch, not a motion sensor light.
1: So I'm assuming they turned to her and asked, since she'd just been in there, does that light turn off when people come out of the bathroom? And she was like, no, there's a switch. Sure. So who knows? Was that uh, Helen flipping the lights off, saying, let's save some electricity around here? No kidding. Next, we have St. Brendan's Inn. This is located at 234 Washington Street. This is located in the Johnson Bank building, which also houses a bank and other commercial businesses. Before this building was built, Augustine Day Langlade's trading post and home was here in 1745, and later the Green Bay Transit Garage sat here and was used as a car barn for the Green Bay trolley system in the 1920s. Buses became the main public transportation system in the 1930s, and so this was converted to a bus garage. And that's how it remained until 2001. After the buses were moved out, the city realized that the site was heavily contaminated. This contamination came from two 10,000-gallon leaking underground storage bins and bled into the soil and groundwater. It was decided that the structure needed to be raised in order to assess the extent of the contamination. Basically what happened here, Kelly, is, you know, they do all the oil changes and all that stuff. Well, they just kept putting them in these barrels and putting them under the ground there. Oh, wow. St. Brendan's Inn opened and not only has an Irish restaurant and authentic Irish pub, but also 28 guest rooms. There'd been a thought that this location might be an Indian burial ground, but the Historical Society assured builders that wasn't the case. But something is haunting this place. Guests complain that their beds shake and that the lights turn on and off by themselves. Disembodied voices are heard, and some guests claim to have seen shadow figures. Employees claim that the laundry room is the most haunted spot in the place. And I'm assuming since laundry rooms are usually down in a basement, they said this didn't used to be a burial ground. (laughs) Right.
2: And now we have Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Listeners probably already can guess what inspires the name of this bed and breakfast. It was indeed related to the Astor family. The land here had been owned by John Jacob Astor, who went down with the Titanic. The Astor House is located at 637 South Monroe Avenue and was built in 1888 by local attorney F. Adolph
1: Watermelon. You really wanted to say watermelon, didn't you? I sure did. <laughs> it sure looks like watermelon.
2: <laughs> this was a stick-style Victorian house. This was a traditional style between movement from the Gothic to the Queen Anne. The most obvious stylus flourish can be found around the windows. They have a lot of ornamentation. San Francisco is full of these styled homes. The exteriors feature eave brackets and trusses with pyramidal roofs and squarish window bays and towers. Dr. Julius J. Bellen moved into the house near the turn of the century, and he did a major remodel. Bellin was a prominent physician and surgeon in Green Bay, and he founded Bellen Hospital and Bellin School of Nursing. In 1994, the house was opened as the Astor House Bed and Breakfast, and it continues to be that today. There are five rooms with private baths. Yay! <laughs> Guests can enjoy their breakfast in the parlor, which is also the place where the ghost here likes to hang out. Most people believe the spirit belongs to Dr. Bellin, His apparition is usually
1: seen in the early morning hours. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Next, we have Tidletown Brewing Company. This is located at 320 North Broadway. Before the brewery called this building home, it was the Chicago and Northwestern Railway Passenger Depot. The building was built in 1899. Many famous people came through here, like Nat King Cole, Buddy Holly, President Taft, President Franklin Roosevelt, and President Eisenhower. The railway stopped service at the depot in 1994, and then the building sat vacant for two years. A group of investors bought the building in 1996 and remodeled it into the brew pub. In 2013, the company decided to expand into neighboring warehouse buildings and opened a full-service brewery with a tap room. The restaurant remained in the depot until the pandemic. The depot is now leased by the Depot Gastropub, and they have TBC beers on draft. Titletown Brewery, tap room, and rooftop are still open in the neighboring Larson Canning Building. Kelly, this has a glorious smokestack atop the building with title, town, and letters running down the stack. Oh, how cool. Yeah, so it just looks really neat. The ghost here goes back to the depot times. People who've seen the apparition describe him as an elderly railway conductor. There have also been sightings of residual male and female ghosts who probably traveled through the depot at some point. And the sound of a train whistle is sometimes heard. And now
2: on to the Ashwabanon bowling alley. This bowling alley is located at 2929 Allied Street and is an independently owned bowling center. They offer cosmic bowling, so we are totally in. This location used to be a high end restaurant called the Salt Cellar. There were three themed rooms. The mahogany room had decor from a brothel, the oak room had a fireplace from a 1900 steamship, and the main dining room had a 125 year old bar. A man named Willard died of a heart attack on lane 17, and people believe that he haunts that lane. He plays with the ball return and scoring computer. People feel as if someone's hovering over them on that lane. This is the only lane that has these issues with the lane turning on by itself and with the computer. The haunting carries over to the lights that turn on and off by themselves. Objects move on their own, and disembodied voices are heard.
1: Local 5 interviewed Brandon Cole in 2021, who was a longtime bartender. He told him that one night he was cleaning up after the bowling alley had closed and he felt like someone walked behind him and touched his back. He said, It felt like as if another bartender passed behind me, like they would as they would put their hand on your back so you don't back into them. The hair on my arm stood straight up, was a pretty weird feeling. There was only one other person in the place and this was a manager who was in an office. Another evening, a manager asked Brandon if he had turned the lights off on her. He had not. She also asked if he had just been upstairs walking around and he also hadn't done that. They checked the upstairs, and no one else was in the building. Next, we have the Kewaunee County Historical Society Museum.
2: There are 19 rooms of artifacts in the Kewaunee County Jail Museum that is run by the Kewaunee County Historical Society. So yes, this is a former old jail. So you know we love this one. And it's ingenious how they have themed out each of the rooms. This isn't just an old jail for people to walk through. It presents tons of artifacts from all different aspects of the county's history but it retains the essence of the jail also. Before this current jail was here, there was the first Kiwani County jail that opened in 1862. An inmate named Joseph Bushy set the jail on fire and it burned to the ground. Bushy died in the fire and is buried on the grounds. It's sad when one hears that the reason he was in jail was because he stole some clothes off of a clothesline. The new jail opened in 1877 and remained open until 1969. The jail was built by John Janda of Kiwani. Since this was an old county jail, as you all know by now, the sheriff and his family lived on site. There was no running water and no electricity. Wood stoves were in each room to provide heat. The wife cooked the meals for the prisoners.
1: Thirty-nine sheriffs served over the nine decades the jail was open. There were several jail breaks. A brass key was made from a water faucet but was found in a porthole before it could be used. A 20-year-old man serving 90 days for theft used a toothpick to open the main door of the bullpen. I don't know how you use a toothpick to pick a lock. After he got out, he stole Green Bay Packer player Max McGee's car and was promptly arrested again. Another prisoner was in taking a bath and took a leg off the tub, and he struck the jailer on the head with the leg and escaped. He also stole a car, but when he got picked up for that, he'd made it down into Iowa. When the jail closed in 1969, the county wanted to tear it down, but was saved by a vote. It was decided to turn it into a museum that opened in 1970.
2: Tim Fries investigated here, and he used a small flashlight to try communicating with the spirits. He thinks he communicated with the spirit of a five-year-old boy. He also got a strange feeling that made him weak and caused a sharp pain in his head. He told a historian at the museum about his experience and was told that the skull and bones of a five-year-old Native American boy had been dug up and moved around by construction workers who were excavating the dirt from the museum's basement. The bones were eventually reburied on the grounds. There's believed to have been a Native American burial ground here before either jail
1: was built. Next, we have the Green Bay Theater, which is located at 217 East Walnut Street. This was built in 1900. It was one of the last 19th century modern-style theaters in the nation. Later, the building became Vic Theater and Orpheum Theater. The exterior of the building was changed in the 1930s to an Art Deco style. By the 1990s, the building hosted two different nightclubs, Envy's and Confetti's. Confetti's had the largest dance floor in the city. Today, the building seems to be vacant, at least in regards to the living. There are spirits here just like every other former theater. When this was still the Green Bay Theater, legend claims a double murder and suicide took place. A beautiful local actress was playing the lead in a play entitled Because She Loved Him So. During rehearsals, she fell in love with her co-star. There were a couple of major problems, though. She was married, and so was he. That didn't stop the duo from getting together, and on one occasion they were doing their thing in the theater's balcony. The actress's husband discovered the two and pulled a pistol from his jacket. He shot his wife, and then as her lover tried to jump off the balcony the husband shot him in the back. The husband made his way down the balcony steps and apparently grieved by what he had just done, he took his own life. People claim that the spirits of all three people are still here in the theater. A shadow figure jumps from the balcony and another shadow figure fades away on the balcony staircase. The disembodied voice of a female is heard.
2: Now we have the Greater Green Bay YMCA, which is located at 601 Cardinal Lane. The first Y building was built in 1870, so the group has a long history here. Reverend Daniel C. Curtis helped develop this first YMCA. This earlier group disbanded in 1879, but returned again in 1887. On their website, they write, With the tremendous growth in lumbering came an influx of men to work in the forests, harvesting this great treasure. Green Bay would soon feel the impact of these men on community life and that would cause some concern for those citizens interested in the young people exposed to these rough men as they came into the city for a night on the town. Green Bay was a rowdy, wide-open, fun city for Sars, lake sailors, and itinerant lumberjacks. The YMCA was hoping to bring some order, we imagine. A new building was built in 1891 and featured lifting machines, vaulting horses, ropes for climbing dumbbells, horizontal bars, wands, rope ladders, quarter circle and mats, two bathtubs with clean hot and cold water, correspondence table in the reading room, stationery provided, reading rooms furnished with comfortable chairs. That building burned down in 1908. The current YMCA was completed in 1925 and features a Tudor Gothic style. An extensive renovation was done in
1: 2017. There's a crime connected to the building that has led to the haunting here. In 1987, a man named Eric Lee Vagliotti was living on the fifth floor as part of the resident program offered back then. They paid rent according to their income and was a way to help men get back on their feet. Eric didn't have a job and a month had passed. The rule was that residents had to get a job within two weeks of coming to the YMCA. Eric also wasn't well liked because he kept to himself. Two of the residents went out drinking, Charles Conrad, age 25, and his friend Thomas Mason, age 22, and when they got back, they found Eric sitting in the TV room. Mason started cursing out Eric, who got up and left. The next day, Mason felt bad and tried to find Eric to apologize, but was unable to locate him. Mason and Conrad went out drinking again that night. When they got back, Eric ambushed them with a gun. Conrad was shot in the heart, and he died instantly. Mason was shot in the stomach. He died at the hospital two hours later. Eric is now serving a life sentence. People claim to see the spirit of Conrad at the YMCA. His apparition is seen in the hallways and in the fifth floor TV room. Next, we have the Bellin Building. This building was built in 1915
2: for Dr. Julius Bellin to use for medical offices. Physicians, dentists, and other medical practices all rented space here. The building is an early example of Chicago-style architecture with a terracotta facade and ornate bevel features and was the first small skyscraper north of Milwaukee at the time. It stands nine stories. The Bellin family held on to it until 1972, and then it was bought by Robert C. Safford, who owned it until 2006. An
1: investment group now owns the building with over 28 businesses renting space. As mentioned earlier, Dr. Julius Bellin was one of the most prominent surgeons in Wisconsin, and he contributed a lot to the medical field of the area. You know, he'd opened up the hospital, the nursing school. He was born in Kewanee County in 1870 and moved to Green Bay in 1904. Dr. Bellin started his first hospital in 1907 and also founded the Wisconsin Deaconess Hospital. That was renamed Bellin Memorial Hospital in his honor in 1920. He contributed $50,000 of his own wealth to the building of a children's hospital in Green Bay. He helped out with other charities, was very active in the community, and it came as a great shock to the community when he fell gravely ill. Doctors couldn't figure out what the problem was, and Dr. Bellin passed away. He was only 58. It's bitter irony that a doctor would come down with something that a whole fleet of doctors couldn't figure out what was going on. Yeah, very much so.
2: Legend claims that the ghost who haunts this building belongs to the man for whom it was named. He's not just hanging out at the Astor House. Dr. Bellin haunts the Bellin building, too. Tim Fry says of the good doctor, Dr. Bellin was a pleasant man in life. He still is in death. Dr. Bellin does like to play games in the elevator. He likes to keep you stranded sometimes, or brings you up when you're supposed to go down, or down when you're supposed to go up. The building has a unique manual elevator. It's one of four left in the U.S. Business owners have claimed to see the apparition of a man in his 50s wearing a black suit and tie. He's always smiling
1: when spotted. And then this last place I think is called Grace Manor. I found a couple of comments about it. Marcus says of his apartment in Green Bay, I live on Monroe Avenue and our apartment is haunted. I've only seen the figure of a woman dressed in 1920s fashion, which is also the same time our building was built. Every night around 1230, you can hear her walking in our kitchen. Then the water will run for a second. Then she walks back towards our bedroom. My brother-in-law says he has heard a woman say hello to him and no one will be at the apartment's. Very strange stuff, but she keeps to herself for the most part, so I don't mind her. And from the same location, Paula wrote, My daughter just moved into Grace Manor on Monroe Street a couple months ago. At night, she hears odd things, and when she checks her kitchen, cupboard doors are open and pictures have fallen. Also, the microwave door will open and shut by itself. Now she leaves her television on at night. It's the only thing she can do to get some sleep. We're thinking about calling for some help to rid her apartment of this ghost. I think it's interesting that both of them seem to have the hauntings going on in the kitchen.
2: That's true. Maybe they like to cook. Yeah. (laughs) Green Bay has a lot more to its history than just football and much more than team spirit. There seems to be many spirits in this Wisconsin city. Are these places in Green Bay haunted? That That is is
1: for you to decide. decide. Lots of great stuff there in Green Bay. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We did get some stuff that we wanted to share with everyone. First, Debbie said, hi, guys. I enjoyed your Hank Williams podcast on YouTube this morning. Hank Williams has been a familiar fixture in my family. My father, who was a musician and 50 years old when I was born, was friends, drinking buddies and neighbors with Hank and sometimes jammed with him. An experience that my dad discussed with Hank may have inspired the reference to a, quote, hot rod Ford on a $2 bill when he was writing one of his songs. My father is long since passed. My mother, who is 25 years younger than my dad, is still alive and was one of Hank's greatest fans. She was also a cemetery preservationist and cemetery historian. She read and often frequented the cemetery where Hank is buried. Mama's has never told me about any Hank-related ghost stories, though. She also worked to restore the Lincoln Cemetery and African-American Cemetery in montgomery where rufus payne is buried that cemetery was a nightmare one could not imagine the horrible state of some of the graves before she and her crew got in there and worked so diligently and there are tons of unmarked graves in that cemetery as well as years of neglect back to my point there's a historic marker memorial to Tot, but no one is exactly certain of his exact burial site just thought i would throw that at you thanks for doing what you guys do so well i enjoyed meeting you in saint augustine and would love to attend another live event That would be awesome. We love Miss Debbie. We do. And, you know, I thought, here they can't find the gravesite for T-Tot. And when you think about it, he inspired Hank. And all these musicians that were inspired by Hank were indirectly inspired by T-Tot. And there's nothing to give him any kind of real honor. So, very sad there. Glad that her mom is doing that. And how amazing that her father used to jam with Hank. (laughs) Exactly. And... Also, that our father might have inspired that song. We also heard from Melissa. Hey, y'all. I love this week's episode. I'm in my 40s and Hank has been a legend for locals my age and older. She's from Montgomery. When we were in high school, it was the thing to do to go have a beer with Hank. We'd sneak into the graveyard, respectfully sit next to his grave, have a beer and pour some out for him. It wasn't uncommon to see a strange mist formation while there. Wow. People have long spoken of seeing him around City Hall and there used to be a statue of him in the neighboring park. The statue's been moved to a more visible location downtown, but sightings around City Hall continue. Y'all mentioned the Cadillac that he passed away in. It's located in Hank Williams Museum in downtown Montgomery. And she pasted a link here to the museum and his statue. And then she let us know that downtown Montgomery is full of haunted history. The city was the birthplace of the Civil Rights Movement and, on an uglier note, was a major hub in the slave trade as well.
2: Gotcha. Well, someplace we definitely want to get to, and I really want to see that
1: car. <laughs> I know. I, that's why I told her I want to see that car. And I mean, it's not that far for us to go up to Montgomery. And Preston wrote in The Crew, very excited for this one. I've been to Hank's grave many times, and it's very nice. His grave and the monuments are all surrounded by astroturf. Now, I'd seen a picture, and I was like, surely that's not astroturf, but sure <laughs> enough, it is. People kept picking grass out of the ground to take as souvenirs, and it wouldn't grow, so Hank Jr. had the grass replaced by astroturf. There's also a sign up asking people not to desecrate the sacred place. People also like to leave full bottles of beer on his grave. I definitely think he and Audrey still loved each other. She just couldn't stay with him because of his problems. They're buried next to each other. Her parents and his mom are also buried there. And there's space where I presume Hank Jr. will be buried. If you want to go visit his grave at midnight like Alan Jackson did in his song, don't do it. The cemetery's closed from dusk until dawn and police do patrol the area pretty heavily. There's a police station across the street from the cemetery entrance. And I think that's probably wise. Legend has it that if you stand in front of his grave and play a Luke Bryan song, you can hear him rolling over. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Goodness. The whole cemetery is worth a visit. There's a lot of history here. They've got a civil war, killed an action burial section, a pauper's field, a former president's father-in-law, a haunted mausoleum, a section for French pilots who passed away during training for World War II and a bunch of really nice old graves. And he included a bunch of pictures. So that was cool. Also want to let you guys know we are producing these redux episodes for our executive producers. And our most recent one that we just put up is on the Salem witch hunts. We did a revisit of that, especially now that uh, we all went to Salem together. Yes, indeed. So if you want to check that out, it's at the $5 and above tier. Just go to historyghostbump.com and hit the support the show tab and find out how you can join up as an executive producer at either Patreon or PayPal. Either one works. And then finally, Kelly, we had an interesting thing happen this morning. I had told all the listeners that when your mom was passing that you had told her that you'd love for her to visit. And we think we might have had something happen this morning. So Kelly, you came home yesterday, actually last evening. So you just left your suitcases and we went to bed because we were tired. So you were unpacking all of your stuff this morning. And your mom had these extra pads of paper that, you know, are these notes that you take in the kitchen, write your shopping list on and stuff.
2: Right. She had several stored. So I left some with my dad and brought some home.
1: And one of them had a magnet on the back of it. So you're like, I'm just going to slap this on the side of the refrigerator. Well, sure. Why not? I didn't know you'd done that because I was out doing my morning run. And so I didn't know you'd put that up on the refrigerator. But anyway... I'd gone in there to get some more water. And as I closed it, I heard this sound like something falling onto the floor. You know, a piece of paper. You know how that sounds. It's like, right. And I was like, what was that? So I looked down and I could see this piece of paper was sitting right next to the refrigerator between the counter and the refrigerator that had fallen down. So I pulled it out and I was like, oh, there's a new pad sitting here with paper on it. But it's the kind that, you know, you have to rip it across to take it off. Right. So the paper doesn't just like fall off like that. No, generally not. <laughs> so I said, oh, Kelly, is this new that you'd put on here? And you're like, yeah, there were some extra ones. That one had magnets. So I threw it up on the side of the refrigerator so we can put our list and stuff on it. And I was like, well, that's weird. Was the top paper kind of loose? Because it literally just came off and slid down here. I certainly didn't notice that it was loose at all. And I didn't really look at it. And I just kind of handed it to you. And then we both looked down at it and your mom had written on it. She did. So the
2: actual paper has a picture of a woman sitting in a chair, and it says, everyone's entitled to my opinion. However, my mom added an addendum to that. And so it now reads, everyone's entitled to my opinion and sixth sense of humor
1: with a smiley face. So we both started crying because (laughs) what are the chances (laughs) that that piece of paper fell off that pad? And that it would have something that she had written on just the the first one. Right. And the thing about your mom is that she would do this kind of thing where she would get tickled by a comic or something that was in the newspaper and she would add her own commentary with it and send them to us in these cards. So we'd get these huge thick cards in the mail (laughs) like once a week or every other week. And so it's just her kind of thing to add her own little thing to the pad of paper like that. Yeah, I love it. And what's funny is she would have no idea that you were going to look at that. She was probably going to be the next one to write a list on there. I'm sure. Yeah, she just happened to add that on. So it just, I don't know, very cool. So we kind of think that that was mom sending us a little message that she was hanging out and finally got to see our house because she never got to see it. Yeah, exactly. I certainly do. want well, to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers.
0: Dispatches from the Grave
1: Digger. We want to welcome back into the cemetery, Mona von Petersdorf. We're going to be putting you into a chest tomb. And welcome into the cemetery, Andrea Gray. You will also be going into a chest tomb. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump.
0: Be sociable, drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump, like the page and follow us.
2: his death and subsequent cremation a portion of his ashes were carried to the moon with the loomer 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 it was a loomer
1: prospector from a very young man walter Mm desired. that's all folks from a very young man walter had desired to make a significant
2: (laughs) Ah, you're keeping that in. You're keeping that in. (laughs) You are keeping that in. Come on.
1: (laughs) He gave to man control of that dreadful scourge. 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 It was a scourge. The Ho Chunk and the Menominee and their ancestors, all and sisters? Their ancestors. (laughs) It's their sisters. And their sisters.
2: And this was the Charles de la, Long- la, la, la La. And he was of mixed race, son of a French-Canadian father, and an Ottawa... God. And an Ottawa...
1: I mean, it is a lot of Ws right there.
2: The Americans built Fort Howard in 1816, and people started streaming here.
1: What were they streaming? Netflix? Hulu? <laughs> God, you're so bad.